Guten Tag und schöne Grüße von City Breaks. Hello and greetings from City Breaks. This is episode four of City Breaks Munich, in which I promised you an episode about a flamboyant character. And that's indeed exactly what I'm intending to provide. We're going to talk about Ludwig II, the second king of Bavaria, known in books written about him by titles like The Fairy Tale King or The Mad King. So most of the episode will be about him, but I'm also going to cover a little bit, a little town on the edge of Munich called Starnberg, which is on the Lake Starnberg, because from there you can go visiting some of Ludwig's haunts and stamping grounds. Ludwig is very much somebody who's left traces all over Munich. He was born in 1845 in the Nymphenberg Palace. We talked about that in the last episode. If you remember, Grandad Ludwig said, this baby that you're going to call Otto, I think I'd rather like him named after me. And he was, his name was changed a few days after his christening. And he became Ludwig and ruled eventually as Ludwig II. He's buried in Munich in the Michaelskirche in central Munich. And there's a memorial to him at a little town called Leone on the Starnberger See, Lake Starnberg, which is exactly at the spot where he died. His legacy, very well known to lots of people, the fairy tale castles that he had built, such as the one at Neuschwanstein. So what is it about Ludwig that made him so very memorable? Well, to summarise in advance, I think we could probably say it was his physical beauty, uh, perhaps even more so the rather strange personality he had and certainly the very strange life that he led. And then, of course, the legacy that he's left in the shape of those wonderful fairy tale castles. So if we start with his physical beauty, there's a lovely quote written by a Hessian officer, that is an officer from Hesse, who saw Ludwig once when Ludwig was out and about visiting his troops and who wrote the following. He was so beautiful that my heart stopped beating. I was so deeply moved that a terrible thought seized me. This godlike youth is too beautiful for this world. And I'm afraid that is in fact exactly how it turned out in the end. He really didn't seem to fit very well. In the ordinary world, he was always a little bit apart. So his good looks, he was very tall, thought to be about six foot four. He had dark blue eyes and a pale ivory complexion and very fine features. He was quite fond of his own looks. He once apparently said, quote, if I didn't have my hair curled every day, I couldn't enjoy my food. But it certainly wasn't just Ludwig himself who found Ludwig rather handsome. Here's the Austrian writer Clara Trudy with a little extract of something she wrote about him. OK, so, quote, He was the most beautiful youth I have ever seen. His tall, slim figure was perfectly symmetric. His rich, slightly curling hair and the few traces of a moustache gave his head a similarity to those great antique works of art through which we have our first ideas of Hellenic manly strength. Even if he had been a beggar, I would have noticed him. Nobody, old or young, rich or poor, could have been left untouched by the charm which radiated from his personality. And actually, on that note of personality, he was very strange. He gradually withdrew from Munich life and Munich society, even though he was the king. In fact, he did that particularly after he became king, because then he had the choice. So what did he prefer? Well, he was well known to enjoy sleigh rides in the middle of the night through the forests. Often he would go off alone. He would get his staff to harness all the horses and prepare everything. Then he'd career off. And sometimes he didn't come back for ages and it was known that he used to stop in the mountains and visit solitary cabins. He seemed to crave being alone. 
Another thing he enjoyed doing was cruising over Lake Starnberg in his own boat. Well, I think odd about that, except that he used to like to do it in the moonlight and he could be seen on the boat reciting poetry and reading out some of his favourite authors, which included Schiller and Shakespeare. He also had a mad obsession for Wagner, both the man and his music, and he was given to ordering private theatre performances in the Residence Theatre. It's believed that he had at least 200 of those put on in the last 10 years of his life. One of his passions was overseeing his ever more fanciful designs for his own surroundings. So as soon as he became king, he started redecorating the rooms in the residence. And this got out of hand, really, and led eventually to the design of Neuschwanstein and Herrn Chiemsee and the other castles that he built. So that gives you a little flavour of Ludwig. If we start at the beginning and do a little biography... Born, as I mentioned, in 1845, and he's thought to have had a strangely solitary childhood. He did have a brother, a younger brother, Otto. They were both rather strange children, and it's thought that perhaps this is when he first began to retreat from everybody. And certainly, at the age of 19, he became king, and the very first thing he did was to start to stamp his ideas of design everywhere he could. He began with the rooms in the residence. He brought in a stage designer, Franz Seitz, and told him that he wanted the rooms redecorated in the style of Louis XVI. Louis XVI, of course, is the one who was eventually beheaded, partly for his lavish taste and the fact that he didn't seem to be a man of the people in any way. So, in the residence, he had the audience room, so the room in which he was going to have his throne and set aside as a room to receive his visitors. He had the whole place hung with crimson watered silk. That must have been costly. His throne was a gilded chair, surmounted by cherubs, and he had a canopy above it, a brocade thing with ermine folds and plumed ostrich feathers. He had a writing room which was decorated with bronzes and marble busts of people like Wagner, Marie Antoinette, Louis the Fourteenth, all the most flamboyant people you can think of. And he had his bedroom redecorated. He had a canopy of gold placed above his four-poster bed, embroidered with Wittelsbach insignia and, again, more ostrich plumes. He does seem to have been very fond of those. OK, so moving outside in the residence, he then decided he'd have a winter garden designed and built on top of one of the buildings of the residence. And um, we have a lovely description left to us by a Spanish infanta who went visiting and described this great iron glass conservatory that is thought to have been influenced by uh, London's Crystal Palace. Um, where, where, but whereas that was for everybody in Hyde Park, this was really just for Ludwig at the top of his house. So here's the Infanta's description. She writes, We came to a door hidden by a curtain. With a smile, the king drew aside the curtain. I could not believe my eyes. There before us was an enormous garden, illuminated in Venetian style with palms, a lake, bridges, huts and castellated buildings. Come in, said the king, and I followed him, fascinated. A parrot swinging on his golden perch cried, Guten Abend, to me while a peacock proudly strutted by. We crossed a primitive wooden bridge over a small illuminated pond and saw before us an Indian village. We came to a blue silk tent decorated with roses, inside of which was a chair of two carved elephants resting on a lion's skin. As you can hear, it really is fantasy unleashed, is it not? But there's more, so they move on a couple of rooms and then eventually she writes, Suddenly I thought I had been magically spirited to the Alhambra. We entered a little Moorish room with a splashing fountain in the middle surrounded by flowers. 
and an adjoining circular pavilion, divided from us by a Moorish arch, supper was laid out. I could see from where I was sitting behind the arch a massed bank of flowers lit up by hidden lights. An unseen choir sang softly. Suddenly a rainbow appeared. Oh, I cried involuntarily, this must be a dream. And of course the Wittelbachs had various properties, one of which was Hohenschwangau, so that was out in the countryside as well. And there too, Ludwig wasn't very happy with his bedroom, so he had it all altered. He was given to staying up all night and going to bed in the very early morning, but he wanted his bedroom nevertheless to have a sort of nighttime feel to it, so he effected a transformation. And when the servants pulled the curtains, stars would burst forth from the ceiling. This artificial galaxy had been created by Ludwig, having holes drilled in the floor of the room above and filling it with burning oil lamps. It does sound slightly like a fire risk, does it not? Anyway, he gets uh, Frank Seitz, the designer, back to build an artificial moon, which worked by clockwork and shone brightly as it crossed the sky and had all the regular cycles of the moon. So some nights it would be full and other nights it wouldn't, presumably. So when Ludwig had a fantasy, he really had it carried out in every detail. Yet another palace or castle that the family owned was Schlossberg. That's actually on uh, Lake Starnberg, just back from the actual coastline. And he seemed to feel very much at home there. It's thought that perhaps he didn't really like the Hohenschwangau palace because that had been his mother's favourite and all accounts are that he didn't get on very well with her. But at Schlossberg, on the Lake Starnberg, he really did feel at home. And one reason for that was because it was a place where he often used to meet his cousin. She was, in fact, the Empress Elizabeth of Austria, but uh, known to everybody, including him, as Sissy. So he and Sissy spent a lot of time together there because she, her parents lived nearby and she used to come and visit. And he and she seemed to be very friendly. Ludwig used to look forward to her visits, in fact, and when he knew that she'd arrived or was coming, he would go over to her house late at night and leave roses outside her door so that they would be there when she woke up in the morning. He used to like taking her sailing along the lake in his boat, and they particularly liked going to somewhere called the Roseninsel, which literally means Island of Roses. It's a little island in the middle of the lake. Ludwig owned it. And his father, Maximilian, had planted it with nearly 30,000 rose bushes. So it was a, in summer, it was a wonderful place to spend the afternoon. And there's a little summer house, a little Swiss-style chalet in this garden where Ludwig and Sissy spent a lot of time. And in his book, The Mad King, Greg King gives us quite a nice description of what they got up to on these long afternoons in the chalet. So this is what he has to say. Here, Ludwig and Elizabeth spent endless hours alone, talking, reading poetry to each other, and when one of them was absent, leaving letters for the other in the secret hidden compartment of a desk in the sitting room overlooking the lake. They wandered alone through the woods, riding and walking, taking picnics and reading aloud to each other beneath the shade of the pine and the chestnut trees. It does all sound rather idyllic, does it not? But although, in fact, I am sure they were very good friends, um, it's slightly sad to read something that Elizabeth wrote about him, which shows that she was quite aware that he was slightly strange. She wrote, quote, He is not mad enough to be locked up, but he is too abnormal to manage comfortably in the world with reasonable people. Ludwig also became engaged to his cousin Sophie, but as the wedding approached, he began to panic. And in fact, he realised in the end that he just really couldn't go through with it. And he wrote her a letter explaining all this to her. 
He's going to go on and tell her that although he's been going ahead with all the wedding plans, he's realised he can't go through with it. This is how he opens his letter. Quote, As the wedding day was forced upon me like a hothouse plant, just as the day of the engagement was, I consider it my sacred duty to tell you something now when it is not too late. Always you have been precious to me and dear to me. I love you with a true and sincere affection. I love you like a dear sister. And this feeling, which is deeply rooted in my heart, shall never leave me. And so I would like to beg for a continuance of your precious and amiable affections. Should you remember me with sorrow and bitterness, it would cause me deep grief. He does sound sincere and he does go on to explain how he just really doesn't feel the feelings that he has for her are those that really you should bring to a marriage. Not quite clear what he means, but that's what he says. And it all sounds rather admirable, really. He's getting through a difficult situation until you find out that actually the day afterwards he confided to his diary how relieved he was that he'd finally got this weight off his chest. And he used the words, quote, Sophie written off and talks about how, in fact, he had been longing for freedom for some time, and now he feels he's achieved it again. If you're interested, you can go to Schloss Nymphenburg, which we were talking about in the last episode, and in the carriage museum there, you can actually see the costly coach which was designed, but of course never used, for the wedding of Ludwig and Sophie. In fact, it seemed to be from this date, he's obviously made some big decision, it's from then onwards really that he became increasingly eccentric. He could certainly be accused of neglecting his duties. So, for example, in 1866, Bavaria was at war with Prussia, something called the Schleswig-Holstein question, which true historians amongst you might know something about. And instead of taking charge, as you would expect the king to do, Ludwig simply fled Munich and ran off to the Berg Castle, the Schlossberg on the Starnberger See, which was very frowned upon. And then actually it got worse because the next thing he did was he ran off to Switzerland. His beloved Wagner, he was friends with Wagner, he was absolutely obsessed with his music. Wagner, there's more about him in an episode to come actually, but he'd blotted his copybook rather by having an affair and he'd been sent away. It was felt he couldn't stay in Munich anymore, so he's in exile really. And Ludwig went off to visit him. At this point, the Austrian ambassador apparently said, quote, one begins to think the king is demented. So the result of all of this, the worry about the way he was behaving, concern about how much he was spending, although in fact I think Ludwig himself would have said that he was spending his own money on his architectural plans and his redecorating and everything, but people were beginning to worry about it and the result of the whole thing in the end was that in January 1886, some of his ministers decided to have him tested by a psychiatrist and they had him certified as being mentally unfit to rule and at that point he was taken to Schlossberg uh, from Munich so this castle in which he used to like spending time and he was kept there effectively under house arrest really and then that didn't last very long because just a few days later he died in very mysterious circumstances and we're not sure even to this day really what happened so he went for an evening walk round the Starnberg Lake with his doctor and they didn't come back and when they were searched for it was discovered that both of them had drowned in the lake. There were signs of a struggle but it wasn't really clear what had happened. Had one tried to drown the other? Had they been fighting? Had somebody attacked both of them? None of this was ever properly investigated. There were all sorts of rumours, for example, that gunshots had been heard and it is known that some of the documents written at the time were later destroyed. So there have been all kinds of conspiracy theories about what happened. 
And actually, Greg King in his book, The Mad King, he his last sentence on this topic reads as follows, quote, few people in responsible positions believe that the king had committed suicide. So I think he's saying that probably there had been some skullduggery of some sort and whether it was ever unravelled and then kept quiet or never unravelled, I don't think is known yet. Ludwig had in fact been a very popular king in many quarters. He was, for example, very given to touring the land round his country estates and stopping off at all, in all kinds of unlikely places and leaving little presents of jewellery and sovereigns and things for the people he met. And I think the morning when he died was actually quite genuine. So on the day of his funeral, the buildings in Munich were draped in black crepe, all the flags were lowered to half-mast and the church bells were set ringing. People came from all over Bavaria, thousands of them, to Munich to pay their last respects. And a newspaper report from the time reads as follows, quote, The crush of mourning folk to the old chapel in the residence was without end. A lady who had fainted was almost trampled to death. And yesterday, a total of 20 people fainted, and a mountain of lost tresses, bustles and broken umbrellas bore testimony to the rigours to which people subjected themselves. So, the idea of people crowding in, wanting to pay their respects to Ludwig. So, he lay in state in the chapel, the Hofkapelle, of the residence of the palace. The ceiling was draped in black. The coffin sat beneath the altar. And there was a large white cross and the Wittelsbach coat of arms, flowers everywhere. And then on the day of the funeral itself, the 19th of June, thousands of people lined the streets for the entire route. The coffin was taken from the residence to the Michaelskirche, St Michael's Church. It was accompanied by the sound of muffled drum beats. All the royal musicians were there to play. The church bells were tolling. There were guns booming in the distance and it was said to be the largest state occasion that had ever been held in Munich. The coffin was placed on a carriage drawn by eight white horses all decked out in black. The Wittelsbach crown, actually I think it was a replica of the Wittelsbach crown, was placed on top and rather sadly Ludwig's favourite horse with an empty saddle, again all draped in black, followed along behind. It was two and a half hours before they reached the church and it's really not a very long walk, 10 or 15 minutes max I would say. And the coffin was duly carried in for the service. And in fact, as this was happening, rather scarily, suddenly the sky clouded over and there was a bolt of lightning which very nearly struck the church. And again, the newspapers had something to say about that. So the next day a journalist wrote, quote, The heavens shed a tear. So Ludwig was buried in a crypt in the Michaelskirche, although rather horribly it's a, it was a Wittelsbach tradition that the heart would be removed, so Ludwig's heart had been removed, and it was taken to the place where the hearts of other Bavarian kings were also stored, so his father's heart, his grandfather Ludwig's heart, and this is somewhere called the Votif Chapel at Altotting. So his heart was placed in a silver urn with his initials on the front, and carvings of Edelweiss and Alpine roses. So Ludwig's body was left there to rest, hopefully in peace. But the very next day, some people went out to the Starnberger See and they placed a pole in the bottom of the lake at the very spot where his body had been found, to mark the spot, if you like. And ten years later, Queen Marie, so that's Ludwig's mother, wanted a memorial put up, so she had a little chapel erected. And Ludwig's uncle, Luitpold, who by then was the regent, he was 
ruling alongside uh, Ludwig's brother Otto, because Otto sadly had also been declared unfit to rule by himself. So Luitpold came along and presided over the laying of a foundation stone at the Voltief Church there on the lake shore. And actually that's become a place of pilgrimage even today, every year on the anniversary of the king's death. People come along to this spot, they stand at the lake shore, they look at the cross which rises out of the water, they've got the chapel then uphill behind them, and they bring wreaths and Bavarian flags and Wittelsbach flags and cast them on the water at the spot where Ludwig died. That is actually a very nice day out that you can have from Munich if you get the train from Central Music out to Starnberg. It doesn't take very long, probably, I don't think more than half an hour, get out at Starnberg, which is a little town at the head of the Starnberg Lake. And then from there you can go on a boat ride. And there's, it's actually a round trip with several stops, so you can get off at all of them if you like. And things that you can do from there include... Apart from obviously looking at the lake, which by itself was something that Ludwig loved very much, you can get off at Possenhofen, where there is a castle. It's the castle that belonged to the Empress of Austria, so Empress Sissi, the lady with whom Ludwig is so friendly. And actually in Possenhofen as well, at the station, there's a little museum to Sissi. So if you're interested in that, that's where you find it. And from Possenhofen as well, I think you have to get a different boat. You can go out to something called the Roseninsel, so the Island of Roses, so out to the place where the summer house is, the little Swiss chalet, where Ludwig and Sissy spent so many happy hours. So you can visit that. And then if you get back on the main ferry, you can go a bit further around the lake and get off at a place called Leoni, L-E-O-N-I, from where it's a walk of perhaps 15, 20 minutes further around the lake to the spot where... The Votifkapelle, so the memorial chapel, is the one that Ludwig's mother had put up in his memory on the 10th anniversary of his death. And from there, with the chapel behind you, if you stand at the lake shore, you will see the cross that sticks out of the water exactly at the spot where his body was found in memory of him. But I think it would be only fitting, really, to end the episode with just a couple of things written about Ludwig just to remind us who he was and what he was like and what an amazing impact he had on everybody who knew him. The first thing I'm going to tell you about is a poem by the French poet Verlaine which was written after the death of Ludwig and in which Verlaine in the last verse praises his unique spirit and imagines his soul being wafted up to heaven to the triumphant and joyous sounds of the music of his beloved Wagner. And then, just to finish off, here's the opening paragraph written on the inside jacket of the copy I had of The Mad King, Greg King's biography of Ludwig. A book I do recommend, actually. It's full of absolutely amazing detail, uh, lots and lots to learn. I definitely recommend that if you're interested in Ludwig, that reading that would be a good place to start. Anyway, this is what the publisher wrote to introduce the book to you. Quote, Ludwig II of Bavaria was the most romantic, beloved and tragic monarch of modern times. His great physical beauty, his devotion to the music of Richard Wagner, his passion for building fairy tale castles, all make him the dream king of legend. Okay, so that rounds up today's episode. Just to say that in the next episode, I'm intending to stick with Ludwig. I think three of the castles that he had built are so spectacular and there's so much to say about them that they deserve an episode to themselves. So that will be indeed the content of the next episode. And a future episode, there'll be a piece on Wagner as well, in which we'll come back and hear a little bit more about Ludwig and his friendship with Wagner. So two things to look forward to, hopefully. But for the moment, thank you very much for joining me again today. 
I hope I've enthused you for Ludwig and perhaps for the idea of visiting some of his haunts if you're ever in Munich. And it just remains for me then to say thank you and to sign off in Germanic form with that lovely word, Auf Wiederhören. Auf Wiederhören.